0: When we talk about relative humidity, relative humidity is actually a calculation. It's not a thing. (laughs) It's not a prime measurement. And everyone thinks they understand relative humidity until you point out that you can have the same relative humidity at many different temperatures.
1: Welcome to MeatsPad. In collaboration with the American Meat Science Association, it's a platform dedicated to share breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the global meat industry. On each episode, you'll have the opportunity to listen and learn from meat specialists and professionals about the whole meat industry. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation. U.S. Pork. Ultrasource, equipment and supplies for the meat and food industry. Hello, meat folks. Welcome back to the Meats Pad podcast. It is your Hungry and Humble host, Phil Bass. Uh, here with another episode with somebody who has some uh, very interesting technology that i want to visit about um and uh the first time i met this individual uh in person was actually when i was talking about uh dry aging and um my eyes were opened and it was t- it's time to to bring uh neville mcnaughton and uh, sanitary designs uh to the forefront we need to talk about this so neville thank you so much for joining us today you're welcome Yes. Well, so um, first off, I want to I want to learn a little bit or I, I want you to share with uh, the audience a little bit of what Sanitary Designs is, because you you go you have a lot of different um, avenues you can go with this, uh, this technologies that you you discuss. Um, and then we'll get a little bit more into kind of the the precision nature of what can be done with the technologies that you use here. So mm-hmm. take it away.
0: All right. So. <clears throat> SDI sanitary design industries as we've called ourselves today was the outshoot of an organization called cheese Source, which I set up back in around about 2000 when I decided that I could be uh, did not need to work for a corporate master, and so I literally jumped ship and had no job and hung up my shingle and said i'm a cheese consultant so. You have to be very opinionated to do things like that and a little bit arrogant because you think you know enough to be of value to others. And so um, I I saw these new entrants into the artisan cheese business. They had money, they had passion, but they really didn't have critical knowledge. And so I said, I have some of that critical knowledge. And uh, if I could share it, I would love to do that. And so I got together with other independent contractors and, you know, we have access to grant writers, uh, which often comes before the project even starts. I have access to HACCP and uh, food safety programs, which has got to be in place by the end of the project. I put all that together and a couple of smart engineers over the year and we developed ideas and solutions. And so by the time we were done, I've got a few notes here. We would do grant writing, marketing plans, business plans, floor plans, equipment selection. We would design equipment when you couldn't find what you wanted. Um, And then we also showed them how to make cheese. And I never know quite what to call that, but it was manufacturing process to make cheeses. And we focused entirely on quality. So today, I can tell you that if you buy a vat that's too small, you'll never make money. And if you buy one of this size, you're almost guaranteed to be a success. And that's the kind of critical knowledge that people need to understand is that if you have a 50-gallon vat, you will never make enough money to pay for your time at that cheese vat. If you understand that up front, you won't be disappointed. If you say, I want to make a profit and hand it on to my children, or I want the weekends off, 600 gallons is the way to get your So So that was the cheese part, but um, so that was STI. We're still more busy with cheese this year and next year than we ever imagined we would be. We've got a lot of projects on the books and a lot going on, but we dream about the day when we can bring more of this to the meat side. And so we've started off with one key piece of equipment and that's the aging room. But I see everything changing in the years ahead, Phil. Um, we still use a lot of ceiling-mounted evaporators, and I believe they will become a thing of the past at some point because you can't clean them when the room is full of product. You know, People cover the product, and they say they do, but really you have to take it out, and sometimes you have no place to put it.
1: Well and so this is this is a great segue and and I, and I'm glad you you eventually got to the meat side of things because I'm sure there's listeners out there going why are we having a cheese program right now which I think we need to have a cheese program but cuz it goes so well with meat of course but um you mentioned um your progression from from the cheese industry and how we can apply it to meat and 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 that's where you and I met was at a dry aging discussion we were talking about dry aging and and regularly um when we're talking about dry aging, um, and this is where your, your your technology comes in, we're regularly mentioning relative humidity. And um, I didn't know if I was going to jump over and 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 strangle you and tackle you, or if I was going to jump over and give you a big old hug because um, you you changed my thinking, you changed my paradigm in that room. And I want you to talk a little bit about relative humidity. And this concept of dew point, because once folks start to understand that, wow, what a, what a, what a mind opening experience. So take it away. You have to promise me that we'll talk a little bit about the, the
0: article in the AAMP that had your name on it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. The concept of dry aging began before refrigeration was ever invented. And it was typically seasonal, so that you'd you'd have a piglet in the spring, you'd fatten them up during the summer, you'd slaughter them in the autumn, and you were hopefully in a region where if you were going to make uh, salami or sausage or simply dry age the meat and hang it, you had to have a dew point, a vapor pressure that was sufficiently low to allow the water to come out of the product. And I remember this very well when I was in France in the Auvergne, and they had meat hanging up in the barn, up in the mountains, and it was dry. But it wasn't dry all year round, but it was dry in the winter. And so that preserved that meat on the way through to eating it during the winter and into the spring when you didn't have meat. So when we talk about relative humidity, relative humidity is actually a calculation it's not a thing, (laughs) it's not a prime measurement. And everyone thinks they understand relative humidity until you point out that you can have the same relative humidity at many different temperatures. And so now we have air with different amounts of water in it because the temperature is different, because the ability of the air to hold water changes with temperature. And when you understand that uh, dew point, and dry bulb, which is the temperature, can be used to calculate relative humidity. And you focus on those two elements. If you control them, you will have the relative humidity that you want. And so many systems look at uh, look at relative humidity and it becomes quite convoluted how you get to control. Where the controls that we have are remarkably simple it is possible to control two things in the room with one device called the coil. Your coil temperature in the room really dictates or sets the dew point. The amount of air that flows across that coil determines how much cooling you get. So if you want to change the temperature of the air in the room, You want lots of airflow across the coil to bring the temperature down. But when you get to your target dry bulb, wouldn't it be nice if you could just slow down the fans? Which we do. We stop the fans, we stop cooling the air, and then the the control continues to focus on dew point. And if the dew point becomes satisfied, we warm up the coil to stop taking out water. So two things occur on our coils. And I say our coils because conventional refrigeration doesn't embrace that air management over the coil for those reasons. And so that's what we did and it's been very successful.
1: So you you're so to break this down just a little bit and we're going we're going to go a little bit deeper into this too but <clears throat> to break this down for the listeners out there if you go into your into your refrigeration whatever um, You'll see the uh, the unit running and and then when you reach a temperature, it turns off. So it's either on or it's off. And what Neville mentioned to me at and it took me a minute to finally realize what it is that that the big difference is, is that you more modulate that uh, velocity or, or maybe I'm using the wrong term, but it's not an on or off situation. It's it's just constantly trying to make sure that, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the coil is the coldest thing in the room. That's the motto. That's correct. All right. And if we can do that, that's drawing the moisture to it. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And uh,
0: we're probably going too quickly, but the, the, the article that was in the AAMP, that highlighted common defects on carcasses during dry aging is a, is a solvable problem. And yet I think the readers of that article said, oh, it's just a fact of life. That's what happens when you have conventional refrigeration. What happens is in a conventional room, you open the door and the room was at temperature. The solenoid was closed and the coil was at the same temperature as the room and the same temperature as the product. You roll in a new carcass that's above the temperature of the room, and that vapor that's coming off the carcass is looking for a home. And it has an equal home on a carcass, or the coil, or the wall, the ceiling, or the floor. The minute that the solenoid opens because the temperature in the room changed, the coil becomes cold and starts grabbing the moisture. But the damage was done in those first minutes in the room because the vapor was condensing on your carcasses.
1: Remember, guys. So, so folks out there listening, it's the reason why so so many folks either have a little pump or have a drain or something uh, that's coming off of the coils in your refrigeration uh, unit uh, because it's pulling water. It's trying to. It, it's capturing water, but it's more pulsatile under our traditional systems. Neville system and Senator De- Designs has one that it's it's constantly the coldest thing in the room. Is that right? Yes. And
0: our sensor is like super sensitive. And I do this test with my cheese people. <laughs> and we, we, set, we set up rooms and I tell them to go outside the room and the sensor might be 60 feet away in the room. And I'll take a bucket of warm water and tip it inside the door, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet away. And then I hear them say, it moved. And they, they see the sensor um, they on our screen. And they say, oh, it's already changing. The dew point in the room is because vapor is what changes. We're trying to focus on vapor pressure. If you know the dew point, you know the vapor pressure. If we put vapor in the room, it changes the dew point, And it's quick. And the irony is there can only be one vapor pressure in the room because it's pressure. The whole room has one pressure. And so you tip it in at the door and the sensor at the other end of the room, which we try to put them as far away from the door as possible. And it's instant. People see it on our screen within a split second. So all of a sudden it opens the valve and makes the coil colder because it's seeing this load. It hasn't even figured out how much load at that point, but it's into it and grabbing that moisture. And if there's an, uh, unimpeded path from the product to the coil, it will grab that moisture
1: very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, and, and something else. So, so, so to go a little bit deeper and, and I know we're going quick and this is where, you know, if somebody really needs to <laughs> understand all the, all the basics of, of this stuff, call Neville, we'll make, give you, give him an opportunity to share how to get a hold of him. But, um, I want to talk about vapor pressure a little bit more. Um, and, um, to kind of <laughs> this is going to be a pun not intended but to boil it down is 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 that we're looking for a temperature in which that moisture that's in the carcass or in the subprimals that we're trying to dry age we're looking for a temperature in which that that moisture wants to leave and, and um, you and I were discussing one time, and, and I can't remember who came up with the term. I'm going to give you credit for it, but we're looking for a cold boil. Essentially, this is a brand new this is a brand new idea, guys. And we're looking for we're looking for a way to get that moisture out of the meat, but at a very very cold temperature for safety reasons and everything, but also very controlled. And it's like I'm trying to evaporate a pot of water, and we can either turn it all the way up um or we can just leave it there and it's going to evaporate eventually but we're trying to do it in a very controlled timely manner and that's that's kind of where this technology is coming in did i get some of that right you did it absolutely right i give you all the credit for the cold boil because <laughs> you certainly stimulated a
0: great discussion but it, that's exactly what's happening we are vaporizing water at very low temperatures because of the reduced vapor pressure around the product and i think a lot of people again often say they understand water activity, but water activity is described as the partial vapor pressure of the product. So the amount of um, free water in the product uh, is what determines your uh, vapor, your uh, water activity, and it's very similar to the relative humidity of the product. It's expressed as a factor of one, not of a hundred, but I'll, uh, I'll, in the cannabis business that we've been involved in uh, somewhat, we are able to set the dew point in such a way that we never over dry that flower. Because the biggest danger is you have perfect flowers and you start drying them, but it overdries. And dehumidifiers only have one dew point. A dehumidifier is set at 32 degrees, right? That's, it, that's how it is. But You don't need 32 degrees to have the right room to dry cannabis. You can actually set it so that it's a beautiful curve and it comes in and then it stops when it hits that and you just let it sit at that condition and it will stabilize and become shelf stable. But it's not 32, which is what happens when you use a dehumidifier or if you use conventional refrigeration, might have a dew point of below 30. It's wrong. And so, uh, focusing on and understanding dew point has some real tangible value.
1: So, guys, uh, think think about um, because most most of the folks listening here um, probably have refrigeration uh, boxes that probably have a lot of moisture in it. And and but I want you to think about um, uh, the the idea of the dehumidifier, which is really like a compact air conditioning unit if you ever turn air conditioning on in the summertime especially in a human environment it dries the air it dries that room and that's kind of the concept but it's either on or it's off and that's where that's where this kind of cool tech this is where i get excited the cool technology is that you guys figured out a way to make it so it's it's it has does it have like an infinite range essentially um
0: yeah Um... in, in
1: in theory yeah, I mean... <laughs>
0: so we're doing some work at the moment, but for us, a dew point between 32 and a half <laughs> on upwards, because if you go below there, you start getting icing up on your coils. Now, in Get- and so we've had to introduce defrost cycles and what have you for some of the very low temperature products like dry-aged beef. So we are um, coming up with strategies to remove ice as quickly as possible, so you shed the ice and begin the process. But in a perfect world, you would avoid a freeze-up of moisture on the coil. So um, it's it's not infinite, but in the upward direction, of course, when your dew point and your dry bulb are the same, it's 100% humidity. The further apart, the the drier the room. Since 1883, Ultrasource has been a trusted supplier to the food industry. Ultrasource provides superior kill floor, processing, packaging and labeling equipment and operational supplies.
1: Right. Yeah. Um pretty pretty crazy technology. I so okay, you just mentioned the the next thing that I wanted to get into. Um uh you said the drier the room. And uh, before we got on here, um there there are folks out there that I want to share uh with neville and his team who um need some help with condensation problems in their plants so so if the folks that are that are still listening um and and you're wondering well i don't do any dry aging what's this point what's the point for me guys this technology um could very well be a potential solution for condensation in plants um folks that are out there especially on on fresh meats uh, we all know the maintenance guy walking around with a long pole and a towel on the end of it, and 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 always constantly um, wiping down pipes and any any anything that's collecting condensate, and that's a big problem uh, from a food safety perspective. Tell me, do you think we can solve some of the issues with condensation in plants?
0: I'm certain that we can. Um, my vertical air handler that we have has a very high latent ratio. So if I'm running a room I get about 50% of the energy is going into the removal of water all the time, whereas standard refrigeration is nowhere near that high. We have also just done a job where we have incorporated basically aging room technology into the production room and the packing room technology at the end of the day after washdown, So the room has been kept cool and they've set the humidity for operations. But when they leave the room, they actually raise the temperature, but hold the dew point. And that lowers the humidity and all of a sudden, it just sucks the moisture off all the surfaces. One of the dangers, and it's when we make a room very cold, all those surfaces are below the dew point of the ambient air outside the room. Okay. So if you have a corridor that can get where air can come in from outside, and it can get to your production room that you might have been holding quite cool, or a cutting room, that moist air is coming rushing into the room, and it's looking for cold surfaces. And uh, one example was where a group would they'd wash up, and then they would turn on the cooling to dry out the room and they they saw an immediate improvement but overall it was negative because they made the walls cold they made the floor cold it was 80 degrees outside it was 75% humidity the dew point's probably about 70 and it comes rushing in and finds walls at 40 wow
1: i mean folks if if you if i mean this is this is some pretty extensive this this is this is a lot of science that's happening here but Let's think about this. So instead of it being just, um, say, a a a a a blast of of air from a fan, now it's moving moisture and whatever else might be in that air um, toward that cold surface, as you've mentioned. And if it's under conventional um, uh, refrigeration, everything's super cold in in that room. But if we don't have a place for that moisture to travel to, then every surface now is a potential for contaminant that came from the outside. Is that what you're saying, Neville?
0: I am saying, and you try and create a visual. So imagine you had a rock in the corner of the production room and you could make it really cold. It would gather water and it would run right down the drain in the corner of the room. And because that's what we want to do. We want that, location a coil or a rock that's super cold attracting the moisture but not making the whole room cold and so that involves getting the air to the coil making sure the coil is good and cold and not focusing on making the room cold because then it becomes the the point of
1: condensation so folks i if you ha- if you have more interest, I mean, we could probably go on for for an awful long time here. But if you have more interest, I want I want folks to I want Neville to get the opportunity to share his company's um, uh, information. Um, but reach out. I mean, this is um, this is some pretty cool technology. Um, I've passed it up. A, a lot of different chains because I believe that this needs to be implemented in a lot of facilities, especially. I you know it's, it's funny we, we we often think about the old facilities that really need the updates. And I think I've seen more condensation problem in newer plants, um, probably because there's so much um, uh, smooth surface that you know it attracts the moisture, but then it just runs right down. And so um, this is something that we need to address. Furthermore, um, folks that are are looking into um, uh, dry aging of meats that need to be at a cold temperature, or not necessarily at a cold temperature, and that's what that's what you just mentioned, Neville, is that um, this is still a technology that it doesn't necessarily have to refrigerate the room, but creates that cold, that cold rock, that cold part of the room. That the moisture is going to want to go to, and so now we're now we're looking into salami room, rooms and 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 salumi type production where we're trying to pull moisture, but in a very controlled manner.
0: Can I make one last comment, Phil? About, of course, mo- of about course. Mod- oh, we're not about- done,
1: but yes, of course. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I,
0: I want to again. It's all about framing people's minds, and by having a modulating coil that's always connected to the job at hand, right? It doesn't turn off when it's satisfied and turned back on. We are going to take moisture from your product all the time at the same rate all the time. And we have already been told it leads to less case hardening because when you pull hard and stop, <laughs> you are being very brutal to the proteins on that product or the skin or those adjacent to the edge. And you dry them out to the point of no return, right? You denature them and they don't rehydrate. And so it is um, absolutely a better way to pull all the time. And some of the old tech did that by having two coils and they were static coils on a ceiling and they would have half the coils would be on and they would start to attract moisture and they would turn them off and the other coils would turn on to continue to pull. But they also had problems with ice and often at too lower temperatures. And so if you can find that perfect temperature that relates to the dew point relative to the humidity and temperature that you want, you can actually pull the water all the time. And so that produces, and so reports are softest product ever
1: for a water activity. That's a, that's an excellent point too and I mean talking about case hardening and and even um it's not a term that we use much in the in like the fresh dry aged side of things but it it's something similar can happen and um and yeah we definitely need to be trying to control that in and 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 oftentimes the best way of doing that is well I'm just going to dry age in a really wet environment and so um but not everybody has that. And so if we can just um, uh, it's almost like we're throwing band-aids at at a solution where, or at a problem, whereas the actual problem is just the turning on and the turning off of that, that uh, coil. And so by having that, and something else that I think about too is um, uh, I live out in the country. I live on a well. Um, I know that that well pump will eventually wear out on me because it's turned on and turned off and turned on and turned off. Um, And, uh, and, and it's always, you know, the belief that, well, it's better to just either leave it run or leave it off. Um, And it sounds like this might even be a, 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 a technology that can extend the life of some of these refrigeration or, or um, uh, humidity controlling um, uh, mechanisms because it's it's kind of gradually always on instead of that hard on, hard off.
0: It's part of the reason, Phil, that we switched over to glycol. It's easier to modulate the cold glycol flow through the coil than it is to modulate the ref- refrigerant direct expansion. And I'm going to say it's not impossible. We still do it. And so it really depends on the customer. And so we've got a, a great installation out in Washington State. Where they hooked us up to a rack of refrigeration because to manage the uh, refrigerant through the coil you do that by controlling the pressure in the coil the pressure and temperature are inversely related there or not inversely but they're directly re- relative to one another and when you do that with a single compressor compressors do not like to be throttled they don't like to be slowed down they have an optimum spot where they are very efficient. And so we tried that and, uh, but if you hook us up to a rack, it works perfectly because it's a buffer. The rack has got other loads and all sorts of things and it doesn't really notice the load. And often we're throttling. It's when you get down to very low loads on a coil and you now are using a condensing unit at 10% of its capacity, It gets really grumpy. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And
0: you have have to put strategies in place, like create a false load so it doesn't overheat. And then you move into the inefficient aspect of it's running all the time, but a lot of the time it's not doing any work. It's just keeping itself from self-destructing.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sounds like shifting gears in a car for those who remember doing that. Well, I I think this I think it's time to go ahead and start landing this plane. Um uh I want to I want to you've already mentioned a little bit of of your background, but I want I want the the listeners I like to do a little bit of autobiographical um uh, uh, uh discussion here. Um and so um tell a little, tell the folks a little bit about how you how you got into the food world um if you don't mind. That's a Tennessee accent, right? Is that or is it more of a Carolina accent? what's, what's that? I'm just My, teasing. my accent? Yeah. <laughs> you you don't know where this accent comes I, from? I know exactly where it is. You you, you had to tell me at one time. But tell the, tell the listeners, because you came from a land far, far away.
0: Yeah, I was um, not a very good student. And so I didn't graduate from high school. Disappointed my parents immensely. And uh, I took the first job that came along because I wanted to be employed. And I ended up in a bottling plant Um back in the the very early 70s. And it was a strange time to be looking, it didn't matter where you went, if you didn't like your job, you could walk down the street and get another one. I did two years there, ended up in a cheese plant, and I was fortunate after a, a correspondence course, they let me go back to Massey University. So I actually graduated in 1977 with a diploma in dairy technology which is very much about applied science. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I'm I'm a bit of a hack, but if you put your mind to it, it all makes sense. And as one fellow said, it's all in a book, Neville. Just go read and you'll find it. it's in a book. So I never forgot that. So I had a great run in New Zealand um, making cheeses other than cheddar, <laughs> right? Because the whole country makes cheddar. And then after ten years, I started my own company and uh, a little company called Capity Cheeses that went on to become a national brand. And uh, while I was working there and had that started, I was offered a position in the U.S. to come across and look for opportunities for New Zealand cheese in North America. And there weren't many. Um, you know, you're, it's restricted by licenses and the types of cheese you can bring in, and when you're making cheese in New Zealand, the grass grows seasonally. You can make cheese for six months, but the market up here is 12 months and it doesn't always fit very well. Um, but I, did, I left New Zealand Milk Products and I ended up working for an enzyme company um, out of the UK. And that's what brought me to St. Louis. And I've been here ever since 1994, we came to St. Louis and I left that company in 2000. And that's when I hung up my shingle and said, I'm going to go be a, a cheese consultant. And, uh, you know, I've got to say probably no regrets. It's not been easy. And uh, but it has been a fun time working in cheese and into meat. And, you know, I see our tech now being applied to many other industries. And that's a good thing. And we are now have a new generation of people at SDI. So they have a future as well. So it's it's uh, as you can tell, it's retirement time for Neville. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, I I have to say, um, so the, the first lengthy conversation that that Neville and I had um, was uh, it, it it was it was very eye opening to me and the the uh, terminology and the science that you were bringing in. I finally came out and said, "What are you a physicist?" And uh, and no, very quickly, Neville. You said uh, no. I'm a cheesemaker, <laughs> so um, you never know where things are going to take you. But I think you, I think you really said it. It's in a book. Um, open your mind. Don't be afraid to do some research on your own. Don't be afraid to do some learning and get out there and learn from those who know. Um, and uh, and and Neville, you're definitely a, a, a different breed. Um, you're able to to really teach yourself. I think you've you have um, a really cool technology. I want folks to be able to reach out to you. What's the best way to do that?
0: Well we do have a website, and so uh, sanitary designs. Is always there. It's going to be completely relaunched again here in the next couple of months. Um, I'm Neville at sanitarydesigns.com. Anytime, I tell people, call me anytime because if I'm not here, you don't need me. Yeah, uh, you know the milk's running down the drain, so we're going to figure it out one way or another. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we don't think we're hard to find. Although we do notice that it's amazing how many people just don't know we're out there. And so yeah,
1: yeah. Well. Um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. I, I hope that we can continue to to learn together, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us here at Meetspad. So, thanks All a lot, right. Neville. All right. Thanks a lot, Phil. Take care. You bet.